Welcome back after break. Um, Father Brian's dad is turning 70, and it's his birthday tonight, and so obviously that's a big birthday, so he's at that party. So we get to have Trevor with us. If I think most of you probably were here when he talked the first time, um, but tonight he's going to talk about Mary, um, and it's going to be really well. We're glad, glad to see everybody back. Now it's the home stretch for everyone receiving sacraments. It's going to come so fast, so this is the best Heart. Oh, and Micah is also here, and he's in the seminary, and we graduated college the same year, and I knew him before he was in seminary. <laughs> no. Um, anyway, so it's going to be great. Let's welcome Trevor. <laughs> Hi, guys. Good to, be, good to be back with you. Hello, everyone watching online. Um, let's go ahead and just start with a prayer real, real quick. And take a few moments to silence our hearts to really just receive the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the silence that only they can bring. And we pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Daughter, Father, we give you all of our thanks for the gifts of this day and all of the gifts that it's contained for us. We give you all of our strength, our mind, our intellect, our will, all of our love, all of our hearts, all of our imaginations, all of our senses, and we ask you to please enlighten this time for us as we contemplate the great mystery of your beloved daughter, Mary. And Lord Jesus, as we contemplate your mother, the one who held you in her womb, who nursed you, who educated you, and who watched you die on the cross. And Holy Spirit, your spouse, Blessed Virgin Mary, whom you gave the gift of the Son. We ask you just to give us wisdom as we contemplate the great mystery, especially as Mary represents each one of us as the perfect creature and as a type of the church, the mystery that we are always being drawn into more and more. And we pray to her, especially as mother of faith, that we might always be introduced into a greater and greater depth of faith as we continue to walk through this life and try to please you in every moment. We do all this with great love for you. And we pray for the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary as we say, Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Great. Well, good to see you guys again. Um, I, I apologize. I'm not sure that this is going to be super, super helpful for you. Um, Father, this came up for Father Brian a little bit last minute. I think that's a trait of the Larkin family. Um, but he asked me last night and then told me like 11.30 a.m. this morning what I was going to be teaching. And I'm a student, so like I have to be doing other things. But this is obviously a, huge, um, a hugely important topic for us as Catholics. Um, it's also one of those things that is really uh, controversial, honestly, among a lot of different religions or uh, Christians of other of other denominations really disagree with us 
um, on a lot of these points concerning the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, if you're coming from even like an agnostic or an atheistic um, background too, like some of the things about Mary can just seem like absurd even, uh, just overly pious kind of devotionals. Um, but there is, there's a lot of power here. And um, it seems to me that a lot of the evils that we're really just struggling with in our day, um, it comes down to um, the initial struggle that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane where the devil's plot, the devil's evil plan was to put hatred between man and woman. We remember that scene in, in the garden when Eve takes the fruit, so Satan has tempted her. He said, if you take this fruit um, and eat of it, you will become like gods. Um, so he puts enmity between her and God, but then um, she takes the fruit, she eats of it, she offers it to her husband. And what's the first thing that happens? There's blame. God comes into the garden and he says, Adam, where are you? And he says, what have you done? And Adam, the first thing he says is the woman. She gave it to me to eat. The woman that you, he actually accuses God. The woman you gave me, she was the one that made me sin. And ever since then, we can sort of see this pattern, right? Um, any of you who are uh, married or entering into marriage soon, right? Um, you're, you're a witness against this pattern that sort of haunted human salvation or human history. And it is part of the, the self, or God's plan of salvation that he wants to bring men and women back into communion. And Mary is the great symbol of femininity, of motherhood, of virginity, of everything that, it, that he wants his bride, the church, to be. Mary's it. And if, if you're a Christian that, that doesn't have Mary in your life, you're not going to understand what we as human beings and creatures are called to be. Those are some big claims, um, but I want to I sort of go into some of those things. But um, again, I think a lot of the culture war that we're seeing right now is kind of a playing out of um, men hating women and women hating men. That's just something that we're seeing a lot right now. And um, we, have to, we have to kind of head, uh, face that head on. Um, I'm going to start with something here, a couple of quotes. So this is a quote from... St. Cyprian, um, he said, this was about 1,600 years ago, he said, you can never have God for your father if you don't first have the church for your mother. And then about 1,000 years later, another saint, St. Saint Louis de Montfort, who was a huge, uh, had a huge devotion to Mary, he kind of summed up the tradition that happened, the, the, the development of theology that had happened since the 4th or the 5th century, and said, you can't have God for your father if you don't have Mary for your mother. And so the, the thing is that the pattern of salvation, we see this in the, in the Blessed Trinity. I, I assume you guys have talked with Father Brian about the Trinity. Is There's a familial thing going on. It's God the Father and God the Son, right? And the Holy Spirit is the love between them. Um, as I mentioned in the opening prayer. No, I haven't talked about that. I'm sorry? I don't think we've talked about that. We haven't talked about the Trinity? No. Oh, we goodness. have not. Okay. okay. No, we have not. We've no, not talked so about the Trinity. Say that forward and do the little thing. Sure, yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. How many of you have heard about the Trinity before? 
heard of it. Yeah, that's fine. Um, okay. No, thank you, Steph. Sorry. That's that's a big one. Yeah, because we're talking about like who God is, right? Um, what we believe as Catholics, right? And this is yeah, this is this is good. Sorry, I'll actually spell that out. Holy Spirit. We believe that God. We believe in one God. First of all. So let it not be said that Trevor was spouting some heresies tonight. We believe in one God. But we believe that the way that he manifests himself and, and actually not just manifests himself but is, is in three persons who share equally the one divinity. And the way he reveals himself is, this is actually a little bit um, tricky. Um, we have, a couple, we have two, two, work, uh, two names for the second person, but the first person of the Blessed Trinity is the Father. He is the fundamental originator, so from him all of the divinity flows forth. He pours his, he, he, he basically the way, the way it happens is, and this is all in scripture, this is especially in the, the first chapter of St. John's Gospel, the Father knows himself perfectly, and he pours himself into another person, whom we call the Son. And the Son receives everything that he is, all of his divinity, and again, he's co-eternal. He's not a creation of the Father. They're, they're both eternally existence. They share the same divine nature. But he for, he, the Father pours everything that he is into the person of the Son, so much so that the only distinction between them is that the Father originates the divinity. This is high-level stuff. Sorry, I, I didn't know we were going to be doing this. but um, And the Son receives it. Um, and so these family relationships, we see them in God already. The Holy Spirit, we, we generally tend to say that he's the love that exists between the Father. And he's so real that he's actually another person, another divine person. So the thing that, that we need to take away from this, sorry, this is high-level stuff. Father Brian can do such, uh, such a better job than I can. But this is the thing. The Father is the originator. The Son comes forth, and there's love between the two of them. And that's the reality of God. Um, it's the reality of love that we aspire to as Christians. This is the, the whole reality of charity, is that we're being brought into a relation of persons, a communion, a community, and a communion of persons. And the whole thing is that we're supposed to exist right here. That's where God ultimately wants us. He wants us in the middle of this so that we see it as perfectly and experience it as perfectly as he does. And we get there by charity. That's the, that's the fundamental thing, is we actually share in this love that these three persons exchange eternally and perfectly. Is that making any bit of sense? It's okay if not. Like If, if you need me to do that again, or if you want me to repeat anything, I'm happy to. This is, this is really... This is really hard stuff, but it is at the center of our faith, so I really want to try to um, hone in on this a little bit as much as we can. Is it is it more or less making sense? Somewhat? Cool. Um, if you have questions or if you think of more think of any questions, please please stop me. I don't I don't mind. So, yeah. Yes. So how do we exist in the community again? Um, the question is, how do we exist between the three? Ultimately the answer is grace. So when St. Paul is talking in all of his epistles about this fundamental reality of grace, 
That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the communion that Jesus Christ, and this is, this is another aspect of this, right? This is Jesus. The, he, Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not the Father. The Father sends both the Son and the Holy Spirit into the world to bring us into communion with him. And honestly, like, the, this is a perfect time to be thinking about this because we're celebrating the incarnation, right, in Christmas time. We're, 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 we're celebrating the very, the very fact that one person of the Blessed Trinity, of the Godhead, we call it, of God, actually came into the world. This is the world. Sorry, I hope, I hope people online can see. He actually came into the world and became one of us so that he could tell us who the Father is and give us means for actually being brought up into the mystery of the Father. St. John's Gospel says, um, no one has ever seen the Father except the Son. And when, when we're thinking about the Christian life, guys, this is so important, like, this is who we're ultimately trying to get back to. We're trying to get back to the Father. He's the ultimate reality. He's the originator of everything. And he sends his Son into the world so that we can be drawn up into that mystery. And so baptism, to answer your question, is the way that we enter into that life. That's why this is really important, that baptism is the way that we're actually made little s, sons, and we can extend that, obviously, daughters of the Father. So when we're baptized, um, I, I did see your hand, sorry. Um, when we're baptized, we're actually adopted by the Eternal Father, in a way that we become sort of conformed. We become like the Son in his very sonship, in his very essence as a person. Does that make sense? Yeah. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God. Um, but how can God be both Father and Son in the same family together be two separate beings? And then also maybe you're getting back to Mary here. Um, how can Mary be both the, the mother of God and the son of the Father? Yeah, so that's a great question. So the question is, if I'm saying that, um, sorry, I'm just not sure if anybody, everybody online can hear us, but um, the question is, if God is Father, how can God also be Son? How can Mary have different relations to God as Father and God as Son? Um, this is the biggest mystery of our faith. This is something that we can cannot understand completely so we can talk about it we can we can say many things that he has revealed to us about it but the way so the the answer lies in we all have a human nature right we're all human beings here which means that we share in one human nature but my in instance of it is different than your instance of it like you're a human being i'm a human being we share in the same nature there's a commonality there but you're a concrete example of that nature. I'm a concrete example of that nature. In a more perfect way, in a, in a higher way that, that we don't, can't exactly understand, the Father and the Son are one nature, but they're different, they're different ways of having that nature. So again, the, way that, the only way that we can understand Father is originator. He's the one who gives the divinity. 
the, the divine nature to the son. And again, it's not in a way that he creates him. That's a heresy. We can't say that. There, there was a huge debate about this in the early centuries of Christianity that tore the church apart. And ultimately the church said, the fathers of the church said, no, they're co-eternal. They're, they're, they're equally eternal. There is, there is no actually beginning. But in some very mysterious way, the father pours himself into the son. And so the father has his divinity as originator and giver. The son has his divinity as receiver and begotten, we call him, or given. And then the son, or the Holy Spirit, has his divinity precisely as shared love, the mutual love that, that exists between the two. The other, so another way of understanding this, and this is why, this is actually a good, a really good question. Um, the reason why we have two names for the Son, um, or the second person of the Blessed Trinity, the Son and the Word, is because our own analogy of language actually helps us to understand the, the very identity of the, of the Son, of the second person. So when I see something, when I see the chair, I actually sort of, in some spiritual way, like immaterial way, I bring that chair and I put it in my mind. And I, I actually have an impression of that chair in my head. But when, I'm actually, when I want to actually express the idea that I have, I have to use a word or a name, right? And so the Father, having the, the fullness of his divinity, of his divine power, of his perfection from all eternity, he looks at himself, knows himself perfectly, and he can't just stay there. He has to, to express it. He has to say something. And what he utters is his son. He, he speaks his son forth. He speaks the word forth. And again, in such a way that that word is so perfect that it's a person. The son, on the other side of that relation, sees himself and sees in himself his father. He sees himself as the perfect image of the father and loves that image so that there's mutual love between the two of them. This is really high-level stuff. This is not going to be easy. I realize that. Um, but we are talking about the central mystery of our faith. Again, this is all in Scripture. It's in our Catholic tradition. This is what theologians and the fathers and monks and nuns have been thinking about and arguing about for the last 2,000 years. Um, there's general consensus, right? We have, we have the orthodox faith. We have scripture to tell us what's going on here. But the point being that they all share equally in this, this um, divine nature. And they, because their love in, its very, in this very relation of, of God is always like giving itself. The Father gives. The Son gives back. The Holy Spirit is the thing given. They, they also desire, the three persons of the Blessed Trinity also desire to pour themselves out upon the earth. That's why they created us. That's why they created humankind, because, precisely because they want to pour themselves out upon us. In a different way than they do inside the Godhead, inside their divine nature. Are we, are we going okay? Sorry, I know this is really rough stuff. But it's beautiful. What's that? Can we pause for just a second to maybe oh. add on the computer that we're using? <laughs> are they gonna? Are, are they uh, asking questions on? Not yet. Facebook. Okay. Cool. So. You're saying that the dots. 
<laughs> so, the, so the second part of your question too is how can how can a, a person, especially particularly Mary, how can she have a different relationship with the different persons? Well, because they actually are different from one another. They're not separable. They're, they're, they're a unity within the, the blessed trinity, right? But we actually do have completely different, like, not completely different, but different relationships with each one of them. We, we call Jesus the Savior precisely because he came to earth. Like, the, the, the person of Jesus Christ is the second person of the blessed trinity who has taken on a human nature. The Father didn't assume a human nature, nor did the Holy Spirit. It's the Son. So while there is complete cooperation, right, they, they share one mind and one will. That's, that's the, this is the confounding thing about it. They share one mind and one will, but he was the one that came. The Father was eternally intending that he would come, and the Holy Spirit was eternally empowering the Lord, right? The Holy Spirit is charity, so charity was empowering Jesus to come. But we do have different relations with each one of them. Um, so one of the one of the really cool things about being in seminary is um, on, during our first year here at uh, St. John Vianney Seminary, where Micah and I both study, at the end of our first year, we do a 30-day silent retreat. And um, it's, it's an experience kind of like no, no other. You're in silence for 30 days, so that's remarkable, right? Uh, imagine that, not talking for 30 days. Um, but when you're not talking with other people, you're talking with God, right? And... I, I don't think I've ever had another experience like this where I actually, when I was praying, there was some kind of spiritual sense that the Lord blessed me with of just being able to sort of hear distinct voices of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, right? They, they, they act in a certain way. They want each, their, each person, each of them wants to be known. But we could never know the Father without the Son coming. When does the Holy Spirit come, by the way? I don't know if we've gotten there yet, but any, any wild guesses? When does the Holy Spirit come into the world? In a pretty obvious way. Pentecost. Pentecost, yeah. And so for you guys who are, are preparing for um, baptism and confirmation, that's, that's the, the reality of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost in the book of Acts. Sorry, my handwriting isn't very good right there, but... Um, that's the, that's the reality that you're being drawn into in your confirmation, is you're actually being, you're being given the Holy Spirit in a completely new way. You're being given the Holy Spirit precisely in the way that will make you a son or a daughter of God, as Jesus himself is. Yes? So do we receive the Holy Spirit then twice at baptism and confirmation? Yeah, in different ways. Yeah. Each one of the sacraments... Uh, sorry, the question was, do we receive the, the Holy Spirit twice when we receive the sacraments? Yes, uh, they are distinct sacraments. If, if it were kind of one outpouring, they would just be the same sacrament. So there, there are distinctions. Um, the way that the sacrament of baptism works is, again, that's the reality where you're simply being drawn, you're, you're being recreated so that you're like the second person of the Blessed Trinity. You're like a son or a daughter of God. You're being reborn, right? And that's the natural analogy of, of baptism is that you're actually reborn. This is John 3 when Nicodemus comes, comes to um, Jesus and he says, 
what do I need to do for salvation? And Jesus is like, you must be baptized. And he's like, you must be reborn is what he says. And he's like, well, can I be born again? Can I enter back into my mom's womb and be born again? He thinks he's being all clever and whatever. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's exactly what you need to do. But obviously he's talking about being reborn in the Holy Spirit. But that's the natural analogy that Jesus himself uses, being reborn. Whereas in confirmation, um, confirmation is the uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit in such a way that you become perfected as an adult, right? So when you're an infant, you're, you're as much of a child, a son or a daughter of your parents as you are when you're 30 years old, but there's a marked difference, right? When you're 30 years old, you can kind of do a lot more stuff, right? And that's what's happening in Pentecost, is the Holy Spirit is actually maturing in some ways the graces that you were given in baptism, and you're supposed to, you're supposed to increase in those, just even as, as Jesus did, right? The scripture says he, he increased in virtues before God and men, yeah. But in every sacrament, there's grace, there's mm -hmm. grace of the Holy Spirit, so right. it's just not baptism you know, or confirmation. Right, exactly. So um, the, the comment was, yes, in every um, sacrament there is grace, and grace is a particular effect of the Holy Spirit. So the, the Holy Spirit will be present in every single sacrament, for sure. But these, in a particular way, we see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in baptism and confirmation. Yeah. Um, is, there, is there a physical, uh, for those of you who um, are already going to Mass and uh, are familiar with the Mass, is there a particular manifestation, physical or otherwise, um, in, within the context of the Mass where the Holy Spirit kind of comes down? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So when, when Father prays over the gifts and say, make, make the, may the, send down your Spirit upon these gifts and make them holy, there's actually this kind of motion. In the, in the Byzantine rite, it's actually really cool. They're, they're kind of like, it's all fluttery and everything. It's super dramatic. So it's, it's actually pretty cool. But it's like, yeah, that's, that's the Holy Spirit coming down upon the gifts so that they might actually become the Eucharist, right? So the Holy Spirit is the one that sanctifies. Um, we are way off, we're not way off topic. This is all interconnected. But um, to bring it back to Mary, right? But seriously, if there are any more questions on this stuff, this is heavy lifting stuff. Um, but this is really important as well. Um, as a, so I started talking about um, how we have to have Mary for our mother, too. Precisely because the whole reality that God wants to bring us into is the Son. He wants to be our Father. He wants to bring us back to himself as Father. Jesus chose he did not have to do this he chose to come into the world born of an actual woman he could have just simply appeared here i am world worship me right he didn't do that he didn't come in as a triumphant king just kind of appears out of nowhere ready to crush the crush all of his enemies heads or something he was born of a woman he chose to have a mother and that's, that's astonishing, right? The eternal God who created the world, who's completely outside of this little world, chose to enter into a woman's body. And have he took up that relation to her as her son. 
It's not just a pretend thing. Mary, we don't just call Mary mother of God because there was just the appearance of her like a fake pregnancy or something like that. And we just pretend that like, oh, she was like the occasion. No, she was actually his mother. She nourished him. She conceived him. She nourished him in her body. That's a pretty intimate um, experience. It's pretty visceral. It's pretty physical, right? And that's, that's the totality of how much God has embraced our human experience, such that his origin in human life and human nature is the exact same. He was a child in the womb. So, spiritually, that also transfers to us. If we're supposed to be being brought into the reality of God the Son, of Jesus Christ, he has God for his eternal Father, and he has Mary for his, uh, for his earthly mother. And that's what this quote is, is getting at, is one cannot have God for his father unless he has Mary for his mother. I, I ex have experienced this in my life um, in rather profound ways. There are different traditions of, um, some of you might have heard of it, con uh, consecrating yourself to Mary and kind of entrusting yourself to her. And that sounds like a pretty intense thing. Well, it kind of is. Um, particularly this, this Saint, St. Louis de Montfort, he recommends that you know the, the, the quickest, easiest, surest way of gaining salvation is to give yourself to Mary, precisely because that's exactly what Jesus did, right? So you think about the experience of Mary and Jesus on earth, When Jesus was growing up, the, the person whom he saw doing good things, being virtuous, being good to others, the, the, the very person that he would have imitated in mannerisms even, who was that? It was Mary. She must have been an absolute masterpiece of creation. If... if God was going to send his son into the world and say, there's going to be one person who's going to form you into the man who is going to save the world. She must have been one special lady, right? And that's why the tradition of the saints says, okay, well then, we're also going to entrust ourselves entirely to Mary to learn of her how we should be as little Christs. Right? That's what we're called to be. We're, called, we're Christians. We're called to be little Christs. Um, so Mary is the one that helps us into this reality. Obviously, Jesus is completely essential because he's the one that we're actually going towards. We're, we're being brought up into the reality of his sonship in, in God. But Mary helps us to get there. I'm throwing a lot at you. A lot. Are there any frustrations, any, um, any, anything that I can clarify just a little bit? We're running 100 miles an hour here. Anything at all? Yeah. Do we know much about Mary in Scripture in terms of the person she was, or is it just assumed that she was this amazing woman because she conceived? That's a great question. So the question was, do we actually know very much from Scripture? Um, about the person that Mary was, or do we just assume who she was because um, because she actually had the Son of God as his mother? Um, I would say it's both. We have there's actually a pretty significant amount that we can 
understand from scripture. Um, at the same time, there's not an awful lot about Mary in scripture to describe her personality. Um, there, so there's, and that's so there's one particular um, author. Sorry, I don't know if this is helpful, but I'll, I'll name her. She's got a unique name. Um, I think that last name is correct. Carol Hauslander. Um, she writes a book. I'll, I'll put this up here. Um, So Carol Hauslander, The Read of God, um, she actually talks about why it's a mercy that scripture doesn't tell us too many things about Mary. And the reason why she says that is she says because Mary was the perfect preacher. Um, and as such, she was, she was the, in other words, she was the perfect God bearer. All of us are supposed to carry God inside of us. This is a Eucharistic reality. We, we believe that when we receive the Eucharist, we actually carry um, God within our within our very bodies, as as well as in a spiritual and in, in, in our hearts. Mary did that perfectly, and so she, as the the sort of archetype, the paragon, the the ultimate ideal of that, um, our our imaginations are distracted with a lot of kind of distract uh, things like. Well, what did she look like? Or how much did she say? Or what were, what were her insights on, on politics? Or all of these different things, right? She doesn't have a character like that in scripture like St. Peter did. St. Peter was brash. He was kind of over the top. He said things too quickly. He had a temper. He was willing to cut a guy's ear off in the Garden of Gethsemane. We don't have those sorts of things about Mary. She says very little. And in fact, one of St. Luke, um, in some ways, St. Luke's Gospel is the most, so if you're, if you're, if you're wanting to read more about Mary, St. Luke's Gospel, he, he really focuses on, on the feminine. Uh, one of the, the lines that he repeatedly um, gives to us about Mary is, and she pondered all these things in her heart. And she pondered all these things in her heart, right? Her son was literally God. That had to be a confusing thing. That had to be kind of an overwhelming thing at times. And what did she do with that? She pondered it. She contemplated it. She thought about it. She didn't immediately judge it and say, oh, this is too much. Oh, this isn't enough. She said, I'm simply holding this in my heart. And again, this, this and many other saints have said, that's what we do. We contemplate God. We contemplate the action that God is doing within us. We don't judge it. We don't we act on it, sure, um, but we don't. We just simply receive it, and that's 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 why Mary is actually quite difficult for us. Um, honestly, like a lot of a lot of us have the ideal of a woman in our head of like Avengers, right? Like superhero woman that's going to go kick Thanos's butt, right? Like she's just she she's uh, what's her name, Captain Marvel or whatever like that. She has no she's unstoppable, completely independent, right? Mary was completely dependent. Mary did very little, honestly. And that's exactly what we're, we're all called to as an interior disposition. How that plays out is going to look so different for all of us. But a fundamental disposition has to be, we need to be in a receptive 
position when it comes to God because it's God who does everything. It's God who gives us our bodies, our intellects, our wills, the experiences that we have, our families, our talents. He gives us everything, and we have to receive those in gratitude, which is why Mary is the, is the paradigm of what it means to be a human being because we receive all of that from God. Kind of a follow-up question to like what scripture says about Mary. When in Mary's life, I assume that like the story of the angel coming to Mary and announcing like Jesus' conception, uh, that like Mary conveyed that to someone and that's how it eventually ended up in the gospels. So correct me if that assumption is wrong, but if it's not wrong, when in her life did she first like come forward with that to say like Sure. Is that something that people kind of knew, like, oh, that's me, she's God. Like, as they're growing yeah. up, it yeah. wasn't like, oh, yeah, he died on the cross, and by the way, he's God. Yeah. Like, Great question. So the question was, I, I'm going to boil that down quite a bit and just say, like, how, did, how do we actually know these things about Mary, and did other people know, or did she, like, talk about these favors? Um, the, the short answer is, yes, she did talk about it, because um, there, are, there are certain details of her birth uh, like giving birth to Jesus that St. Luke particularly tells us that only a mother would know, right? Um, honestly, and he captures a lot of that stuff. And the tradition, actually there's a, uh, there's a tradition in the church that portrays St. Luke, the evangelist, as, well, he, first of all, he was, he was a pretty incredible guy. He was a, a doctor. He was an educated Greek. Um, so his, his Greek... Um, I have to talk about Greek because I'm standing in place of Father Brian Larkin. Um, his Greek was vastly superior to almost any, any other New Testament author. Um, so he was extremely well-educated. He was a doctor. So he would have known the, like, the biological goings-on goings of pregnancy as well. Um, and there are certain details in the gospel that kind of betray that, that kind of give that away, that he like, knew all of these in, intimate things. And there's a tradition where it actually has him like, painting a portrait of Mary. So the tradition from very long ago is that he knew Mary personally. Um, and we'll get to this, pray God, um, we'll get to this in John, the, the Gospel of John. Um, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, if you remember this scene, this is, um, we should just go there. Um, I think we just need to get some scripture in front of us. Um, Yeah, so what Micah was just saying, for those of you online, is um, we know for certain that Mary knew all of the apostles because it, Scripture says on Pentecost she was there in the upper room with the apostles, right? Um, there's, there's complete reason to believe that she had the most intimate relationships with those first groups of disciples. Um, so again, yeah, we're sure that, that, um, that Mary got or gave the facts uh, for some of the Gospels, but I'm going to take us to uh, John 19. So this is the crucifixion in John's Gospel, and it says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. 
When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. So we know for sure that John took on Mary as his very mother, like earthly mother. He took, what that, that expression means is he, he cared for her for the rest of his life. Um, Jesus was dying. He was giving up his life, and he knew that he was going to ascend to the Father. He was leaving this world, and so he entrusts his, his mother to St. John. And we, there, there, so this is interesting. John is writing this passage, but he refers to himself as the disciple. Sort of the same thing. It's kind of the an- anonymity thing is he's actually expecting all of us to put himself in the, or to put ourselves in the place of that disciple. And that's another way that the fathers interpret this passage is um, when Jesus says, um, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. That's, that's basically Jesus saying, woman, behold Adam. Right, he's standing right here. This is your son. And then he's saying to Adam, Adam, behold your mother. This is now your mother, right? He's giving, he's giving his mother to the church at that point. Um, this is a great question. I, I love that question just because, yeah, it, it, there, there were mechanics of how, how the Gospels were actually written. How did they know these things, right? It's cool to reflect upon. Yeah. Uh, okay, one question. Catholics believe Mary never sinned because God protected her from sin, right? So Catholics Great. Um, that's a huge question. I love it. Um, are all of you familiar with the term the Immaculate Conception? I'm sure some people are not. That's fine. Has anybody heard that term before, the Immaculate Conception? Okay. So there is a dogma of the Catholic Church where we, we say that Mary was conceived. Her first moment of existence was preserved from sin. We, we don't, and this is, this is a matter of faith for us, this is a matter of Catholic dogma, we, we actually have to believe this, that Mary was never touched by sin. That is a different, it is a different reality from how Jesus was never touched by sin, because Jesus is God, and sin is the exact opposite thing from Jesus. Jesus is God. To say God and sin are to say two diametrically opposite things. God is not sin. Sin is everything that God is not. Mary has a particular participation in that purity, that God-likeness. And we call that the Immaculate Conception. And we say that she was, in a miraculous way, simply preserved from the, the condition that we all inherit when we come into this world. We call that original sin. I'm sorry you guys haven't talked, probably have not talked about original sin. Oh, good. Okay, great. Good. So, so you guys, I'm sorry. You get one. I get one. Good. Um, so Mary was simply preserved from the effects of, uh, from original sin itself and from many of the effects of original sin. Now, this is a really astute question, right? Because um, then it begs the question, how was she free 
right? If she never had any original sin, wasn't she just like a robot? Like God just created this perfect little robot that would always say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, I'll do whatever you want. That is a temptation to think that way, precisely because we don't understand what sin is and precisely because we don't actually understand what freedom is. Because our experience is completely tainted by the, the experience of original sin. We experience ourselves as kind of at war with ourselves. One part of ourselves is always kind of tugging on the other, saying, oh, maybe I should do this. Like, think about a diet. If you've ever, who's, who's ever had, been on a diet before? Right? It's like one part of yourself is kind of saying, I shouldn't eat that. And the other part is like, ah! Right? I always go to the food examples. Um, but we're kind of at war with ourselves. The, the different parts of ourselves don't actually agree on what should be done. What it means to be preserved from, from original sin for Mary was that the parts of her soul were just simply aligned to each other. They weren't warring with each other. They weren't, just, they, didn't, they weren't constantly like placing obstacles in the way of each other. Right? It was a much more seamless experience for Mary. Does that mean she didn't have difficulties? No. She, she certainly, we read about the difficulties in the gospel, right? In, in St. Matthew's gospel, it tells us that within, I don't even remember the timeline, it's like a month of Jesus' birth, King Herod wants to kill him. And she has to leave her home country and flee into Egypt with a newborn infant who is God. Right? Mary obviously didn't, she was not free. She was not preserved from the difficulties of life. She was preserved from the, the interior effects that would make her opposed to God's will. And that's a miraculous thing. That's something, it, it, you kind of do get the jealousy thing, like, man, why didn't I get that? Well, that's a question we can ask the Lord in heaven, but he does invite us into that. He does invite us into the reality of holiness. Holiness is real. And having a will that is actually aligned with God's, that is possible. It won't be perfect until we're in heaven, but it is possible. And the minute we start losing faith in that, the minute we just start, we start going away. We start going away from God. We start leaning towards sin. We're, we're off the path, right? It's not by our own strength. It's by God's promise and by God's goodness that we can come into that. But Mary simply was given given it in a in a more perfect way. Um, is it a break? Yeah. Okay, so we'll, uh, how long do we break for? Five minutes. Five minutes, okay, cool.
but, right? I know, I think about this all the time. It's like, you set me up. <laughs> Yep. Yep. No, he's out. He's out. <laughs> I don't remember your name, but I Yeah. 
questions that kind of came up during the break? Yes. So the Immaculate Conception, I think, like a misconception I have about it from like a young age was that it was when Jesus was conceived, you know, like Holy sure. Spirit and Mary yeah. exist. So how was Mary conceived without sin? Because is that her Anna? Is that her mom? Yes, exactly. All right, I'm just going to draw these on the board. I hope this is helpful. I don't think the online people can read this very easily. Honestly, as you're coming into the Catholic Church, um, one of the big things is just kind of learning the language. You know, we've got our, we've got our lingo, and it's not necessarily easy to, to remember all of these things just from the get-go. These are two different things. Um, 
the Immaculate Conception. So this is this is uh, answering the question. Um, what is the? Sorry, what was the second part of your question? It was just like how was Mary conceived without sin? You were saying like she she came into this world without sin. Yeah, perfect. Um, so the question is, there can be sometimes be a, a, a confusion between the Immaculate Conception, which is Mary's conception, and Jesus's conception. Um, and then how did Mary's conception actually happen in such a way that she was without sin? So we call Jesus's conception the incarnation. It's Latin. Uh, it means incarnem, which means into the flesh. God came into the flesh. Um, he took on human flesh. And the reason why we talk about it is because God preexisted that moment. The second person of the Blessed Trinity already existed. He's eternal. He never. He, there was never an instance that he did not exist, right? He's completely eternal, but he came into creation in a particular way. So he took on flesh. We don't use that kind of terminology with Mary because she's not eternal. She's a creature. She was, when she was created. There was a moment when she didn't exist, right? Um, so she, we, we, we refer to it as the conception, and we call it immaculate because... I'm just thinking of the best way to talk about this. Well, I'll, I'll put, so how did the Immaculate Conception, how was Mary conceived without sin? How did that happen? What are the mechanics of it? Let me pose a question to you. Maybe I'll, I'll show, get, I'll just ask for a show of hands. There's no shame here. Is it correct to say that Mary was saved by Jesus? Is it correct to say that Jesus is Mary's Savior? Yes. No. Mike already gave it away. He's like over here raising two hands and whatever. Yes, we say that Jesus is Mary's Savior. And the way that happens is that at the center of salvation history is the cross. Is Jesus hanging on the cross on Calvary, submitting himself completely to God in an act of love, pouring out his blood and his life, so that all of us can actually be saved and enter into that reality of the sonship, that Trinitarian reality, the, the inner life of God. That action is at the center point of all of history. Here's Old Testament stuff. Here's where we are. That is at the, the center of all of salvation history. And it informs everything that comes before it and everything that comes after it. So... Any of the people, let's say Adam and Eve, any of the people that ever came before, Moses, right, David, any of these people who we read about in the Old Testament or anybody else that ever came in history, all of them were only ever saved because this. They only ever entered into salvation because of Christ, because of his sacrifice, not for any other reason. Same with Mary. She's like right here. She's right before Christ. She's still saved by, by means of Christ's salvation, on the, or of his sacrifice on the cross. But what that means is simply that God, when he created her, by, a, by an act of his, his grace, simply said, she will not be touched by, by original sin. Whereas every single other person besides Adam and Eve, they were not created in original sin. They fell into that state. But every other creature 
has been born into that existence. Now, why is this fitting? Again, it's because the person who is going to educate the human nature of God himself needed to be clean, needed to be beautiful. That's, that's only fitting for his son, right? God is giving his son to the world. That's fitting that he has a, a human person who is immaculately conceived. Now, the way that there, there are a lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters who simply just say this is absurd, that first of all, we couldn't necessarily know it, um, that scripture doesn't explicitly say it anywhere. Well, there is, there is an awful lot of biblical evidence um, for this claim, and as Catholics, as a Catholic, I believe that this is an infallible doctrine of the church, that is that it, it's simply true that it's, it's part of divine revelation, so it's it's not it's not meant or it's not uh, capable of being uh, erroneous. Um, if you're still coming to that place, that's fine. But the biggest um, the biggest scriptural argument for it is the Ark of the Covenant. Um, have you guys talked at all about in the in the Old Testament what the Ark of the Covenant is? I'm not talking about Indiana Jones exactly. No. Okay. So. You guys talked about Exodus at all? Like the, the Exodus from Egypt? Um, so in, in Old Testament times, we're talking about the time of Moses, right? So Israel, this is 22nd version. Uh, not really, it'll be longer than that. Um, Israel goes to Egypt. They become a great nation. Pharaoh hates them and starts really fearing them and says, we're going to make slaves of these people. We're going to make them build the pyramids. We're going to persecute them like crazy, right? Um, so Israel as a nation, they're increasing, they're growing, they're strong, and they're faithful to God. And all they want to do is worship God. And Pharaoh says, heck no, you're not going to worship your God. You're going to worship me, basically. That's, that's ultimately what's happening. He's enslaving them. God afflicts Pharaoh with any number of signs, plagues, to get them out of Egypt, right? And this is the central plot of Exodus, is that Israel is coming out of Egypt. They go into the desert. Anybody know where they go? Where do they end up? It's a mountain. Sinai. They go to Mount Sinai. And what happens on Mount Sinai is Moses, as the leader of the people, hence he's a foreshadowing of Christ. He ascends the Mount Sinai, goes up to the top of it, and on the top of it, he has an experience of God. God gives him the Ten Commandments, the law, which informs all of Jewish life. The Torah, as they call it, as we call it, right? Because it's, it's part of our revelation, too. He gives them the law on Mount Sinai. That, those tablets that the law was written upon, it's, it, Scripture describes it as God took his finger and actually wrote into the tablets these things that he wanted Israel to observe about himself. One of their, they're the things that help us to worship God correctly, to have a right relationship with God. To, again, always trying to bring us back into that central mystery of the inner life of God. These are things that help us to do that. Those things were written on the stone tablets that we call the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments, as well as some other um, relics of the, the journey out of Egypt, they were placed into this vessel called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark, we can't actually have an under, or really a conception of how sacred this was to the, to, to the Jewish people, except 
as we Catholics re uh, regard the Holy Eucharist, right? You don't touch the Holy Eucharist without reverence. You don't come near it. Like, we receive it at Holy Communion, and that's, that's humbling, and it's beautiful. But it's not something that you're just kind of passing around or, right, we, we, keep, we, we hold it in gold vessels. The, the, the vessels that, that holds the Holy Eucharist, they have to be precious metals by church law. They have to be precious metal, right? Because that's the, that's the thing that's fitting for, for uh, God. In the, in, the same, in the same kind of way, the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol and location of God's presence among his people. They, among all of the nations, Israel said, we are unique. The one God, not any of these false gods that, or idols that the, the, pagans, the pagan nations are worshiping, the God, the only God, has actually come down into the midst of us and has his presence among us. That was the Ark of the Covenant, right? Um, that once, once we enter into the time of David or a little bit after the time of Solomon, he actually, the, Israel actually builds a temple up around the Ark of the Covenant. But, so the temple in the Old Testament times was built to contain this thing, which was the understanding of God's presence among his people, right? It was pure. It was what actually contained God, even though he's uncontainable. It was a symbol that he had entered into a contract, a covenant with Israel, and that was his guaranteed presence among them. In other words, he would never abandon them. That, because that's, that's the perpetual fear of humanity, is that God will abandon us. And the, the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol that he would never leave them. Question? So did other people actually get to see the Ten Commandments? Yes. Where they were, so they were visual to the Israelites? They were. Yes. What happened to them? Like at what time did they, did they disappear? Or? Yeah. So the question is, uh, were the Ten Commandments, those stone tablets, actually visible to other people? And ultimately, what happened to them? Um, we know that, that people could actually see them because if you remember what happens when Moses comes down from Sinai, the Israelites have already abandoned God, mm -hmm. right? They, they, he comes down from Sinai, and they've made a golden calf, yes. and they've actually started worshiping it and giving into sexual sins as well. Um, and Moses comes down, and he's holding these tablets, and he sees that they've already prostituted themselves out to another god, and he breaks the tablets, right? And so, I, and I don't remember exactly the details of how this happens, but they, there are other tablets that are, are then given to him as well, and those are the ones that are placed into the, into the, 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 the Ark of the Covenants. But he broke the, the tablets before the Israelites to show that they had broken their covenant with so God. So did anybody actually get to read the tablets? I don't know. Yeah, I don't exactly know what, what the... we have a whole faith how we differ from being Mormon or anything is mm -hmm. that everything we do is public. It is, mm -hmm. we believe the things that have happened publicly, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's... How are the Ten Commandments? Well, so that's a great question. Yeah, so how do we, like... Every, I'm going to try to summarize that just for the people online. Mm -hmm. Everything that we do is public, so right? So um, it seems fitting that the Israelites would have actually seen those Ten Commandments, but the... So this is the, um, the word that... Sorry, this, this is not very well. Um, there we go. 
um, the Torah is the word that they that the Jews gave to the first five books of the gospel or of the of Scripture. So um, that's Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Um, those five books were, by tradition, written by Moses himself. So Moses actually wrote down all of the revelation at the end of his time, or at the end of his life, according to the tradition of, um, of the Jews, and handed that on. So it would have contained not only the Ten Commandments, but the entire law that God um, eventually kind of fleshed out for them, and also the Mosaic Law as well, which is contained in Deuteronomy. My yeah, mind, that's a good question. The same because Moses wrote all this down. Well, who witnessed that? I mean, I'm not saying yeah. I don't believe. Totally. Yeah. That, no, it's, it's super good. Kind of I've like never thought of it um, as a. So the the question is, how do we know necessarily? Like the the whole the whole thing of Moses going up to um, Sinai kind of sounds like and, and writing these things down actually kind of sounds like Joseph Smith writing the Book of Mormon. Um, I'll have to think about that, honestly. Like, I'm not sure that I have a, a super good answer cause, just because I've never thought of it. It would be a good one to bring up to Father Brian. But Great. Um, the, the thing is, though, this, and this is where, just where my mind goes. I'm sorry if this doesn't directly address your question, because I think it's a super good question. But um, we understand all of history in light of the cross and Jesus Christ. Right, he stands at the center of history. And so that's one of the things where we basically everything that the, the Mosaic Law and it, that's contained in the Old Testament was a prophecy written thousands or sometimes a thousand years or more before Christ. And it was saying at this particular time, in this particular way, this particular place something will happen and you will be redeemed. The nation of Israel will be redeemed. We believe that that's something that could not have been foreshadowed uh, just by mere chance, right? That God was actually acting in history and saying all of these things are supposed to be pointing forward to Christ. So Moses is a prefiguration of Christ himself. All of the things that he was saying about what the Savior needed to be was fulfilled in Christ, right? And that's why that's that's ultimately one of the, the reasons why we say there's a credibility here, um, because historical record in the in in the religion of the Jews, right, um, actually says like book, book of the prophet Isaiah, for example, says that this this savior will suffer; he will be rejected by his nation, et cetera, et cetera. Like more particular, and Father Brian can explain those honestly way better than I can, but. All of these things are sort of foreshadowing Christ. And that's one of the signs. It's not the only sign, but it's a thing that helps our, our natural reason kind of say, okay, what are the motives for faith, for having faith in this whole, this whole scheme? I hope that's somewhat helpful. Um, but yeah, again, ask, ask Father Brian. Yeah. Another thing I was thinking of is that Jesus, Jesus mentions and repeats the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Like in Matthew. Totally, yeah. Which
Right. Right. Yeah. Um, the, so what was said over here is um, the uh, the people were at the base of Mount Sinai when the when the law was written, um, and so they they knew that God was present there and was actually doing something. And in the scriptures actually say uh, they were afraid because there was like lightning and, and awe, sort of awe inspiring things going on up at the top with Moses and whatever. But the the people were too afraid to go up. Um, yeah, I wish I had a better answer um, for exactly um, that question, but I'll tuck it away and um, I'll mention it to Father Brian. The thing that um, I want to keep going on with, with Mary, though, is um, she is the new Ark of the Covenant. That is, that the, the fact that the Ark of the Covenant actually existed in the Old Testament was a prefiguration of who she would be. That she is the perfect um, presence, the, the perfect container of God's presence among his people and because of that she has to be preserved from original sin again this isn't a this isn't like a logical argument that says that it's not like mathematics this plus this therefore this it's simply saying that the way God has has revealed salvation history to us it's completely fitting that Mary is the new ark of the covenant rather she's the real ark of the covenant Everything else before that was simply a shadow leading up to this ultimate revelation of who Christ is, and Christ is God's perfect um, presence among his people, right? Who do we call Christ? Emmanuel, God with us. He is the Emmanuel. Yeah, Micah? Uh, you've got a big scriptural uh, citation that we use too for the Immaculate Conception is uh, from Luke when the angel Gabriel visits Mary, she says, you're full of grace. And it's a particular way of saying that she's full of grace, meaning that she like always has been, always will be, is completely like up to the top. Like can you imagine like a, a container completely full of grace? Um, and so that's kind of what the, the one scriptural uh, source that we use to talk about it. Because if she was full of grace, that means she was she was pure, she was spotless, she was without sin. Yeah, thank you, Micah. Um, so for those online, uh, Micah was saying that the, the one place, um, I'm just looking for it here, um, it's Luke 1, 28, um, where the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, and she, he actually says, hail, full of grace. In the Greek, the word is kekaritomene, which is a particular way, it's the only instance that's ever, that word is ever used. Um, and what it means is someone who has always been and always will be and in a completely perfect way has been filled up with grace. And that's, a, that's, the, that's the most particular place where we can actually say there was no stain of original sin in Mary because that's the only time that particular phrase is ever used. In fact, Luke invented that word to describe the, the, the re reality of Mary's relation to God. The only analogy that we have there um, within scripture that I'm aware of is when St. John um, in, his pro, in the first chapter when he talks about um, why Christ or that Jesus, the, the word came into the world, uh, it says and we saw him in, full of grace and truth full of grace so Mary is particularly related to Christ and similar, similar to Christ in her fullness of, of grace there are other things about this um, yeah, we're just running a little bit short on time, but um, 
other things about this, for instance, in um, Luke chapter 1, when Mary goes to visit St. Elizabeth, this is the second mystery of the rosary, this is the visitation, when uh, Mary receives uh, the information that she will be the mother of God, she says, yes, I accept this. Um, the first thing that she does is she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who's in her old age. She's conceived in her old age with John the Baptist, um, the forerunner of Christ. And when Mary goes to Elizabeth, again, her first action is just to be filled with, with charity for her, her cousin who needs help. She goes to Elizabeth as the mother of God. And Elizabeth, she sees her afar off and she gives a shout of joy. And it says that the infant in her womb, St. John the Baptist, he leaps for joy um, at the coming of, of Jesus. And, and she says, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come and visit me? These are very explicit references to um, the first book of Samuel. When David sees the Ark of the Covenant coming towards him, it literally uses, the, the, the Greek uses the same word that he gave out, kind of a yelp of joy, a shout of joy. It's the same word being used by St. Luke to describe that. And it says he danced before the Ark, right, um, just out of sheer joy and out of sheer worship and praise. And St. John the Baptist is dancing before the Ark. Again, Mary is the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. So this is, this is Luke's sort of subtle artistic argument to say this is, this is why Mary is that pure um, presence uh, or place of the presence of God. Yeah. We had that earlier question of you know, did Mary have free will? If she didn't have free will, why did the angel come down and say, hey, this is going to happen to you, and she had to say yes? Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah, for those, for those um, on Facebook, um, the comment was just made. It's very helpful. Um, we had the question earlier, like, did Mary actually have um, free will, or was she just kind of a grace robot, right, where she just kind of was pre-programmed to do everything that God wanted her to do? Well, that's St. That's Luke's argument uh, when the angel actually comes down and says, um, God wants you to be his mother. Do you accept this? And Mary says, yes, I do accept. It's a, it's a, it's a, a showing forth that Mary could have said no, um, that she actually did have free will. But she freely chose, knowing what was what was um, in store for her. She freely chose it. Uh, that's that's a really helpful point. Um, any other questions? Before we, yeah. I think another like big scenario for her that was always kind of in my head was the Ascension. Like, how was she like just levitated up into heaven? And also, mm -hmm. like, where I've seen a Thomas in the in between Catholicism, Protestantism, it's like. Where is the evidence in the Bible of that, or, mm -hmm. or what brings us to believe that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, the question is about the, uh, the mystery that we call the Assumption. Um, when Mary was, um, Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven, this is something where um, the conflict between Catholics and Protestants is reducible to a different a different starting place um, right so Protestants have a notion that we disagree with as Catholics that everything must be contained in scripture in order to be true or to be believed or something we we believe as Catholics that sacred scripture contains 
all reveal the truth that God has given to us, but it may not be explicit. It may be implicit. And so actually a, a, a way that we know it better is through tradition, is through the, the, the things that um, our forerunners in the faith have actually handed down to us as something that was, was always understood or was eventually agreed upon after centuries sometimes of debates and that sort of thing, whereas Protestants are much more tentative about that. Um, but it, that, that ultimately kind of comes down to which came first, first the church's authority or the Bible. Well, it's the church's authority, like because there were actually arguments about what should be contained in the Bible, and the church was the one that said, this is the Bible, right? So to say that everything must be contained in the Bible, it, it just ends up in a kind of a, uh, an endless circle. Um, but the assumption, so the assumption is the, is one of the, the earliest apostolic traditions, at least as far as I know from the, from the patristic records. They, they say that because Mary was not touched by original sin, um, she, she was not liable to the punishment of corruption. That was one of the things. So when God created man, he didn't intend that we, that we should ever corrupt, that we should ever, first of all, die, even more so that we should not corrupt. Corruption is, is something that's uniquely a fruit of the original sin. So when Jesus dies... Uh, when he gives up his life on Calvary and he's buried in the tomb, he doesn't corrupt. He's raised. Um, he's raised on, on the third day, right, in the Jewish expression. He's raised um, two days later, two 24-hour periods later. Um, but he doesn't corrupt because that would have been completely unfitting. And this is one of the, the gospel writers allude to Psalm uh, 15 or 16, however you count that, um, to say, I will not give my beloved one to see corruption. In the same way, um, Mary, because she was not touched by sin, she was not touched by that particular, um, that particular aspect of the punishment that came with, along with original sin. And so the fathers just simply understood then, you know, and this, again, this was something that, that the apostles actually witnessed, they were present for, and then they handed it on to their successors. But for some reason, it just, it wasn't recorded in scripture necessarily, but it was, it was completely in line with their thinking that the reason why she didn't uh, like die or whatever, um, but was simply taken up into heaven, um, is because she never had that contact with sin, kind of like very much like like Jesus. Um, the other the other thing about that is just just very practically is, you know how kind of crazy Catholics are about relics. We have relics of all of the apostles basically, and none of Mary, not a single one. None, no relics of Mary. Like there are no, there are, there are no, like with, with the saints, you have, we have their bones, their hair, their fingernails, something like that. Catholics have always been crazy in this particular way. With Mary, there's never been a single claim that like this is her body or this is, is, is any aspect of her, right? That's actually pretty powerful if we, if we have the, that apostolic tradition of like, we, we have all of the bones of St. Peter and St. Paul and all these different things. And there's never been one single claim that Mary rests in a particular place, if that makes sense. Um, great. Well, the next time, um, I'll, I'll give a few minutes for questions. Um, but the next time you guys have class with Father Brian, 
ask him about the Gabira, the queen mother. Um, I'm just going to punt that to him because he wanted me to talk about that and we never got there. Uh, the queen mother is, is another uh, Old Testament um, explanation of who Mary is in relation to Christ. Um, and it's a very particular tradition. Also, uh, authors like Tim Gray and Ted Sri from the Augustine Institute, um, they've written a lot about this tradition as well. Very, very practically, um, I will just say from personal testimony, my life changed when I gave it to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, it didn't become easy. It, didn't, it wasn't like everything was just completely smooth sailing. But she, she, she is a good mother. She was a good mother to Christ. She will be a good mother to you. So however that looks, um, you are going to be called into that somehow, whatever that devotion looks like. And honestly, like sometimes it can be really hard. I had a good friend who um, I think his mother passed away when he was a really young child. And so he grew up completely without a mom. Maybe some of you are in that, that kind of situation. And it's very hard to just like spiritualize a mother, like imagine a mother if you never had that kind of natural analogy. Um, and so that was something that one of the, that this friend, he always kind of um, struggled with devotion to Mary be, simply because he hadn't had a human mother present in his life. Um, we can have sort of natural obstacles to, to experiencing and encountering Mary, but she, she is still present. Um, I had a lot of those obstacles, honestly. Um, and it's taken a lot of perseverance, and she's very gentle. She's very quiet in how she, how she sort of is revealed, uh, just like she is in the scriptures. Um, our spiritual lives are not, not removed from that experience. She's very silent in the scriptures. She's very silent, I think, in the spiritual life a lot of the time. But she is real. Um, so have faith with that and just try to develop a relationship with her. Um, one of the best resources, I mentioned a, a book, uh, The Read of God. That's beautiful reading. Um, uh, another one that if you're interested in learning, just learning a little bit more about this consecration to the Blessed Mother, um, there's a book called, um, bless you, um, called 33 Days to Morning Glory. Um, and it's, a, it's an actual, it's kind of a 33-day retreat that leads you through a consecration of how you can come closer and closer to um, Mary through the, the, the lenses of various saints. Um, last point. Why do we care about Mary? Because the whole tra um, trajectory of salvation history is that God wants to unite himself to us. He wants to bring us into his reality. But that's it, we see, I think we see this most clearly in Mary. That reality is a spousal reality. He wants to espouse your soul. He wants to bring you to himself in such intimacy that can never be broken, that you know each other inside and out. You're completely, you completely belong to one another. Mary was the most perfect instance of that. She was the perfect bride. Right, as I said at the, in, the, in the prayer at the start, she was the perfect bride of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that overshadowed her and brought into existence through her the Son. So she's bride, she's mother, and she's daughter. And all of those reveal some, some aspect of what, how God wants to relate to us. But it's a spousal union. She, Mary is a spouse. Um, she's espoused of God. She is... She enters uniquely into the mystery of the divine persons um, in such a way that, that God wants to bring us all into that relationship. So persevere with Mary if you, if you have trouble with her. 
Um, not everybody can just kind of waltz right into this um, this relationship with ease, but I hope this has been a little bit helpful to understanding who she is. Um, any other questions about anything with, that we covered at all or about just something in general? I'm happy to field some questions. What about Chelsea? I mean, where's his credit in all this? I mean, you think about how hard was his life. Yes. Right? Why is that not ever really Great. discussed? The question was, Simply, what about Joseph? Um, which I love that, yeah. What about Joseph? Um, you might know, I don't know if you have heard this, Pope Francis actually declared this as the year of St. Joseph. Starting on December 8th, he declared kind of a jubilee year where he's asking the church to consider in a particular way St. Joseph. And um, Father Don Calloway um, has recently written a book about devotion to St. Joseph. Um, Micah, do you remember what it's actually called? Consecration to St. Joseph or something like that. Um, but if you look him up, that'll be um, one of the books that comes up. But there are other books as well that do really reflect upon St. Joseph, right? The reason why St. Joseph, um, for those of you who might not know, St. Joseph was the spouse of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, basically, he was the one chosen by God, and you guys will have to go into this a little bit more if you have questions about this with Father Brian. Um, he was the one chosen by God to be Mary's protector. Um, we believe that that was a virginal marriage, that um, he, they, they entered into a marriage relationship without ever consummating so as to preserve her, um, her virginal state. Again, that's, that's a big topic that you might broach with Father um, Brian next week, but St. Joseph was indeed extremely influential in the life of the Holy Family, right, because he had to guide them into Egypt when um, Herod was trying to seek Jesus' life. He, um, it, was, it was he who also educated um, Jesus in particular ways, right? Je Jesus was a carpenter, like Joseph was. So this, the things that I was saying about Mary as the sort of primary model for, for Jesus is also true St. Joseph, um, that he was kind of the formator of Jesus's masculinity, which is an, also a, a, just a tremendous thing to think about for us men. Um, wow, we, like we know the struggle of actually trying to form our masculinity and virtue. It's not easy, right? Um, certainly women have the same, the, have, you know, uh, a journey to, to forming virtue, but um, men need particular models to look to, and St. Joseph is, is a particular model of that, too. And one thing that's very striking about St. Joseph also is um, he was completely silent. There is not a single word in Scripture from St. Joseph. Again, it's just kind of an interesting thing that the models that are, are built up for us in Scripture are silence and contemplation. And we really struggle with silence in the modern world, right? So maybe if we, if we take one thing away from, from this class, like, that's, that's one thing. Like, are we actually contemplating? Are we thinking about things? Are we pondering the word of God? Are we pondering what he's doing in our lives? Um, or are we just always on these things, you know? Um, I think they're opposed to one another. Silence and these don't go very well together. 
Um, and so sometimes we just have to kind of radically change our lives. And I think that's the way that St. Joseph challenges us. He's a very silent man. Um, any other questions? Any questions on my stuff? No, I just one thing before we end in prayer. Um, something with Mary, I, I mean, I grew up Catholic my whole life, and my it's kind of sometimes weird to think about having a relationship with Mary for some people, and I think that's normal. And so, but something personally, and everybody, and I think Father Brian, when he, he's going to say that, like I've heard him say that multiple times, like it's, it's good to question and ask the hard questions because this is what separates us in a lot of, one of the big things that separates us from other Christian denominations. But something personal for me, and Christian Catholics aren't required to believe in Marian apparitions, but for me, I read this book called Blessed to Tell, which is about this woman, Immaculate Elisa Zaza, who survived the Rwanda genocide, which happened in 1994. And she, it's like her, it's like her autobiography. She talks about her leaning on the love of Mary to fight that her whole family was murdered from during that time. And it really changed my perspective on the whole thing. So I encourage you, if you like stories and hearing real life examples of how people have a relationship with Mary, she is an incredible woman. I've heard her speak at, she at CU, University of Colorado, hosted her to speak, not even as a, like, it, they're not religious at all because she just has a presence about her. Um, so the book, yeah, it's called Left to Tell. And she wrote another one called Our Lady of Cabejo, which is about the apparition that happened in Africa. Mary prophesied that the genocide was going to happen because of the hate in the country. So anyway, pretty there's a bunch of different stories like that. I mean, we, we go to church at Our Lady of Lourdes, so that's a cool story too. But that has really helped me personally in my faith journey, especially when I'm kind of actually questioning the faith as a cradle Catholic and taking it in as my own relationship. So. Anyway, I just thought I'd say that because I remember when Patrick was in this, he's like, that's kind of weird. <laughs> you know, it's totally new. So I think that's normal. Totally. Yeah, thanks for that stuff. Yeah. Um, that is, that <laughs> well, is, I thought it was weird too. That is, that is totally a key yeah. thing is like, yeah. you know, there are definitely a lot of like um, people that say like, why do Catholics worship Mary? We absolutely don't. Yeah. She's not God. She's a creature. Right, so it's just it's trying to come to an understanding of what, like, what position God, the one that we worship, gave her in this plan of salvation, and it can be hard. That's okay. This isn't an easy journey. So, thank you guys for your patience with me. I'm sorry I wasn't necessarily a little bit more dialed in, but. Um. All right. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, our Father, we ask you to bless us tonight, um, bless all of our questions, all of our ponderings, all of our wonderings about your providence and what you have done in our lives and in salvation history. And Lord, we come to you as your sons and daughters in need of you as our father and in need of a mother. And we ask you to bless us in this longing to see you. We ask you to continue to increase our faith in all the things that Christ and his, his Christ through his church has revealed to us about you as our eternal father. We surrender all of our anxieties, all of our fears um, to you. 
And we ask you to keep us strong as we continue to try to be your disciples, to walk after you as best we can. Keep us loyal to your love. Keep us in your love. We ask all of this through the intercession of the Blessed Mother. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.